Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the further misinformation that's been expanding and has been exposed through various mainstream media sources and through their own incompetence. I'll also be talking about the actions of various technological companies, including Facebook and Twitter, and how these actions, unfortunately, actually reinforce many of the same conspiracy theories through a poorly thought out methodology. Once again, I have to reiterate that misinformation is an omnipartisan problem. It doesn't matter what country you're in, doesn't matter what affiliation or political beliefs you hold. Regardless of all that, misinformation is something that actively clouds the path from getting to one point to another, which is something that anyone with any types of political beliefs would want to be able to do. Many institutions were once reliable are now also peddlers of misinformation. And while not all journalists at said institutions may be corrupt, there is still a lower bound of some of these institutions, of the people employed by these institutions, such that there cannot be a clear chain of command to resolve every single one of these issues. What this means is not that you should never refer to any of these new sources, does not mean that you cannot trust any type of statistical report or fact or factual information that is given to you. If that were true, then the game is already up. There would be no moving back. However, I do not believe that is the case. What needs to be done is a more intellectual approach to thinking about probabilities. I will get to this by the end of the episode. But in summary, we need to be thinking of news, of information, as various points. Not as absolute truths or as absolute falsehoods, but as probabilities. Points on a scale from unlikely to likely. And that we need to be able to aggregate all this information in a way that gives us the best prediction of the world around us. Another idea that needs to be reiterated is one that I talked about in episode 5 of this podcast, the importance of public trust. There needs to be institutions with a record in order to increase that probability of success, in order to increase the veritability of their reporting. This is not just in the eyes of the public, but also in the eyes of other institutions that may look to refer back to them, and to have one essentially central source of information that can be counted upon. To some degree, this still exists in Canada, other Western nations, including those in Europe, and in Asian democracies such as South Korea and Japan. One of the most important tasks that a disinformation purveyor can do in order to establish a strong outcome for relatively little effort invested is to attack these fundamental institutions, to try to attack the individual journalists not only by discrediting them, but also to expose the real flaws that they hold. Of course, journalists are human, and thus make human errors. Of course, journalists should be trained to avoid such errors, but they nonetheless happen, sometimes due to poor training, sometimes due to bad luck. Unfortunately, what is able to be done is that these weaknesses can be exploited again and again in order to spread disinformation through mainstream media sources. 
there are various blind spots that I've outlined in a few of my previous episodes of major institutions, such as the willingness to spread racial conspiracies and the partisan lean and also narrative bias that influenced the decisions of many individual journalists, regardless of institution. What can be done here is that these malicious actors can have a targeted campaign towards people with a certain set of predisposed values. These may align with a political party, or they may simply be a set of personal moral beliefs that become easily exploited. Once these beliefs are discovered, and once a new story is created that is able to infect those who hold that belief, this is used time and time again in order to attack those same institutions, in order to expose those weaknesses, some of which are very real, and undermine that public trust. One solution to stem this would be to train journalists in a more effective way, casting back to the ideas of supporting better mathematical training for journalists, better statistical understanding, and in generally updating what journalistic ethics means in the 21st century. Keeping all of those ideas in mind, let's move on to one of the major social media stories of this decade. That is, the shifting rules and guidelines towards publishing different types of journalism. Of course, what I am referring to is a story about documents allegedly obtained from the laptop of Hunter Biden, the son of presidential candidate Joe Biden, and various forms of corruption of receiving payments while a relative is in office have been proven and have been shown with financial records on Hunter Biden himself. There have not been any records as of yet that tie this corruption to Joe Biden himself. What this means, this means that while his son may have engaged in levels of corruption that would be illegal in many Western countries, these are in fact somehow allowed in the United States and somehow allowed in the countries in which Hunter Biden was operating in. What this also means is that this does not necessarily provide a substantive link to Joe Biden's role. Those are the facts preceding the release of this story. However, the story does accuse, through various code names, of Hunter Biden referring to orchestrating a meeting with Joe Biden and some of his employers. This does not necessarily prove that such a meeting actually occurred, and it also does not necessarily prove that Biden had any sort of financial influence over the deal. To reiterate one of the key themes of this show, however, the appearance of corruption is something that would be completely destructive and annihilate any candidate's campaign in almost every other Western country. To bring up the example in Canada, Trudeau lost more than 10 points of a lead because he gave a government contract to an organization that had paid speaking fees to members of his family. Similar standards would be held in the United Kingdom and in France or Germany or many other Western democracies. However, many American politicians engage in this corrupt behavior, including the President of the United States, Donald Trump himself. All this information makes it so that the story does have some value. Moreover, while early accusations pointed this as misinformation, citing claims that this may be hacked material, and also citing claims that 
there may be Russian disinformation agents involved with it, which we do not know is either true or false at this point in time. Various social media companies, including Twitter and Facebook, tried to reduce the dissemination of the story. Facebook through adjusting its recommendations, and Twitter through outright banning the story altogether. Let's go through this in two steps. Let's first take a look at Facebook's actions. Facebook's actions essentially reduce the virality of the given story by adjusting how its recommendations actually promote one story to people who aren't necessarily going to see it, who haven't subscribed to be notified by every single post by someone who is sharing the story, and essentially reduces the speed at which stories are communicated. Now, my opinion of this is that Facebook should do this with every news story, and especially with everything that has contested information. I'll talk about this later on, but the idea of essentially putting a slow fog around the spread of any possible story on social media does provide a method for uniformly approaching this problem and creating a different incentive system that incentivizes high-quality news instead of high-quantity news. The problem here is that Facebook employed it only on one story, instead of employing it at a larger scale. Twitter, on the other hand, decided to censor the story entirely, deleting posts of the story and preventing users from sharing the link. They also disabled the New York Post's account, the account of the newspaper that initially posted this story. This is often reserved as a nuclear option. It's often a panic button for when a monitoring team seems to notice something that may be completely destructive and have grievous consequences if not acted upon immediately. Of course, after the story has been passed through various news sources, and after it has been reported on thoroughly, and while research is still ongoing, some claims have been verified and some claims have not, then we know that, obviously, there hasn't been a mass spread of disinformation that caused violence, that caused significant corruption, that caused additional methods of interference, etc. In other words, the fears about the Hunter Biden story from the team at Twitter were completely misled. I'm hesitant to jump to the angle that this is active censorship or that there is any malice behind this because, quite frankly, I don't think if malicious actors were willing to take this extreme of an action out of political partisanship or out of their own interests that they would be disclosing it or that they would be doing anything other than trying to cover it up. They would likely excuse it as some sort of technical mistake instead of as a very real human mistake, despite many people not necessarily believing that. In my opinion, the most likely scenario is that some assessment team at Twitter really did believe early reporting on this, that it was a falsely sourced story. This had later been refuted, but there were claims about this early on, and decided that they were going to take a Pascal's wager and do a nuclear option in order to prevent any sort of chaos that hypothetically could have been caused. In the end, this would ultimately be a case of poor judgment, of a team, quite frankly, being incompetent and misassessing the outcomes of a given story. The most important step for Twitter to take at this point is to reveal how this decision process was made and to move forward in increasing transparency. 
the same idea of public trust applies. There has to be a baseline assumption of some sort of goodwill with regards to changing these stories, with regards to any actions these companies may take. However, if that is impossible to restore, which it could possibly be, then what needs to happen is that Twitter needs to be supplanted and replaced with some other company, which is very difficult due to network effect and due to various problems that we discussed earlier. But at some point, the balance will shift and a greater number of people will realize that Twitter is dysfunctional and naturally change platforms. While this may allow further dysfunction and it may allow further misinformation, because there is this natural failure mechanism in place, this will not cause as grievous of levels of damage as many of the other forces we discuss on this podcast. Zooming out to a wider scale, we can also talk about some of the other measures that are currently being undertaken in order to try to reduce the spread or influence of disinformation. This includes labeling models, some of which employ artificial intelligence, that essentially trains itself on existing fake news stories and tries to find articles online that are similar to those existing fake news stories. This is an imperfect solution and may lead to both false positives and false negatives, that being cases that are not disinformation that it falsely flags as disinformation, as well as cases where there are real disinformation stories that are not detected by the system. Unfortunately, it can only really act as a first layer of defense against instances of fake news, including ones with incredibly poor grammar, similar to what you might see on a scam email. What this essentially is, is an inbox filter for your social media account. What I would recommend is that individual users be able to toggle the use of this algorithm. What this means is that if users are distrustful of Facebook's intentions or any other social media network's intentions, that they can opt in to the use of such a filter. That they can opt out to the use of such a filter. Essentially, if the training data given to the algorithm, the examples of fake news that it initially uses in order to build an understanding of what to look for, then there are going to be corresponding problems with the detection algorithm itself. Because we are at a level where trust cannot necessarily be allocated, where the proper steps of transparency have not been followed, this decision should be given and should be made open with the various stories that are getting filtered. Unfortunately, I've not seen any social media company move forward with such a policy. The last idea I'm going to talk about interacts with government and involves a geography-based ban somewhat similar to China's dramatically named Great Firewall. Of course, what that is, is China's method of blocking various companies and various ISPs, internet service providers, that are outside of the country or that come from sources which the government flags as not being in their interest. Of course, this is a severe exercise of government power, and it does continue to have negative effects on Chinese citizens. As with any idea, there cannot be an absolute in one direction or the other. There often does need to be some sort of moderation. And what this means 
is that the government or various companies can flag various companies or sources of information as being from an area that is likely to spread information. Of course, one such example of this would be blocking a large amount of traffic from Russia, one of the key state purveyors of misinformation. Of course, the fundamental problem here is that the United States does not have a high level of government trust itself. So, what might be useful is to delegate this to other members of the Five Eyes community. A strategic alliance between the United States, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. All of these countries have much higher levels of government trust, particularly New Zealand, after its excellent handling of coronavirus. With the help of these allies, with much stronger democracies than the United States, some accurate ability in order to slow down the information passing from enemy countries will result in a system that makes it much more difficult for foreign actors to spread disinformation while still maintaining the quality of interaction and the freedom of speech of various allies and of a country's own citizens. As with any government policy, trust here is so important. And while it may definitely be difficult for many Americans to assign their trust to a country such as Canada or New Zealand, despite them being allies and despite them holding many of the same democratic values to a much higher standard, there is simply no better option within the United States. On an individual level, there are some broader ideas that are incredibly important to follow when approaching some of these questions of discerning information, of telling fact from fiction, and of navigating yourself through the world. One is creating a black box of information in taking scenarios where a news story is true and false and determining what impact that ultimately has on your life. While this doesn't necessarily give any information to the verity of a given news source, it does help you filter what you actually have to be concerned about. If you have a news story that ultimately doesn't determine any of your actions, then you can just go about ignoring it. And while you may want to eventually figure out the truth, if all of the other methods I describe later on make this impossible, or if it's simply too much effort to do so, then using this filter first will be very helpful in reducing the effort that you actually need to put into this. The second, once again, is verifying sources, trying to go back towards the original source claims, trying to look for initial reporting of scientific studies, and if you're in a country with a struggling media system, such as many countries in South America or the United States, then you're going to want to verify with foreign sources as well. The third idea is much more complicated and involves Bayesian probability. Essentially what Bayesian probability is, is a method of calculating the chances of something happening given a relation to multiple other things. Let's take the following example. You have a man who's going in for a coronavirus test. And this coronavirus test has a 99% uh, true positive rate, which means that if you have the coronavirus, you have a 99% chance of getting a positive on the test, and a 1% false positive rate. So if you don't have the coronavirus, you have a 1% chance of getting a positive on the test. Now, let's also assume that you live in an area where 2% of the people have been infected with coronavirus. 
So how you would actually calculate the probability that you actually do have coronavirus is that you would take the probability that someone has the coronavirus, so 2%, multiply it by the probability of a true positive rate, so 99%, and then divide all of that by the total probability of someone getting a positive test, that being the combined probability of someone having coronavirus and then getting a positive test, or someone not having a coronavirus and getting a false positive test. So what that would be is 2% times 99% plus 98% times 1%. After taking the quotient of those numbers, you end up with a 67% chance approximately of having the coronavirus. Now that may be a bit confusing for some of you in the audience, however, their implications that this has for verifying the truth of news stories is a little bit more fuzzy. This is because we assumed some things in our original calculation that were easily verifiable. You can collect statistics on how many people in a given country have coronavirus. You can do the same for how effective a test is. However, you can't necessarily collect information on how likely one specific news story is to be true. However, some of these things can be gleamed from intuition or from other layers of research. If you have a story that's well cited, if you have a story that has scientific sources and is done by a reputable individual, then you're going to have a much higher probability, say 90%, than if something was just broken with anonymous sources, for example. Maybe you would think that the probability of that being true is maybe 50%. And what you would have to do is you would have to compare these stories to the probability that a given news institution is fabricating a story. What you would do is you would start by guessing some of these probabilities up from the reputation or from various research that you've done onto the news story, and you would get three numbers. You would get the probability just in general that that story is true, you would multiply that by the probability that if that story is true, then the institution that you're reading it from will publish it correctly. And then you would divide that by the total possibility of that story coming out from that institution, which means the probability that it's true multiplied by the probability that they accurately report it, added to the probability that it's false, multiplied by the probability that they falsely reported it. All this is to say that you need to factor in three things. The likelihood of a story being true in general, which the higher it is, the more you can trust that the story is true, which seems kind of obvious. You need to factor in the accuracy of the source that you're reading it from. The more accurate that news source tends to be, the more likely for the story to be true, which also is somewhat obvious. And the third thing that many people don't account for is the total likelihood that that story gets published which is to say, the more likely it is that someone publishes a story that is false, then the more likely it is that the overall story that you're reading is also false. Try to identify those three factors as you go about in your daily life, and factor them in into judgments that you make about how true a given story is. Also remember that because we're dealing in probabilities, we have to accept some of this risk in our lives, we have to be able to accept that uncertainty, and that means being flexible 
and being willing to acknowledge that your initial assumptions may have been wrong if more facts come out. Finally, you may also want to adjust for the consequences. Even if you think that the story is unlikely, you may still want to take protective measures. For example, if there is a news story saying that there may be a terrorist attack in a given area, you may still want to take protective measures such as avoiding that area, even if you don't think that the story has a very high chance of being true. Of course, this is not an easy task for anyone to do, but you should start training as soon as possible, you should start using these skills in order to develop them further in your life. Finally, we return to the idea of transparency and what organizations themselves can do in order to reduce the uncertainty that people have in order to build up the trust and the goodwill from the public. And unsurprisingly, it seems to be the opposite of what many companies are doing. We return to the Polyev idea, the idea that complexity is the refuge of the scoundrel, that when you increase the number of arbitrary factors in a given system, then that increases the potential for corruption and from the calculations I talked about before, it lowers the probability that anything coming out of that institution is true. So how would you counteract this? You would try to make as much information about the systems that decide a given outcome public as possible. That means Facebook openly publishing some of its algorithms or at least the methodology that those algorithms follow. The other thing is the reduction of arbitrary factors. In this case, I take a very extreme approach to other forms of Facebook censorship. I don't think Facebook should be censoring any content that is legal, regardless of how it makes people feel, regardless of what impact it has. They should only be censoring content based on factual inaccuracies. What this means is that it removes one of the additional factors, one of the possible other motivations, besides aspiring to a higher degree of truth. Quite frankly, I think the damage that can be done by false news spreading through social media is much more than ever could happen from someone calling another person an a-hole over and over again. In order to address the most pressing problem, some sacrifices have to be made, and that includes sacrificing standards that are not necessarily productive, and that includes sacrificing standards that give an idea of corruption, that give the idea that Facebook is censoring things based on their political beliefs or based on arbitrary factors such as how someone feels. It is incredibly easy, whether you're someone who agrees with those initial ideas or not, to realize that they actively interfere with the idea that Facebook and other social networks are trying to create an honest environment. Of course, this wouldn't be a metapolitics episode without me plugging the idea that we need to get rid of the existing American institutions and supplant them with Canadian media or other foreign media. Like many of the US's other problems, this is a short-term solution. And one of those media sources that you could supplant the American media with is this podcast. So you can share as much as you can, you should like, comment, subscribe, and you should talk to your friends about this podcast. You should talk to them about the ideas even if you don't reference the podcast by name and help more of them interpret the world more accurately. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about a mainstream cable news host sharing false information immediately after I published an episode about mainstream sources sharing false information. Of course, a host on one of the American cable news networks, MSNBC, 
shared active propaganda involving false emails sent by Iranian disinformationists. It doesn't really give us much new information, it just reaffirms some of the things I talked about in this episode and in the previous episode. Feel free to listen to that one if you haven't yet. Once again, it just reinforces the idea that something needs to be done about the media and that it needs to be the first thing to be done if we want to have a system that converges to solving all of these other problems. As I said before, try everything you can in order to promote this podcast, and thank you for listening and for helping make the world a better place.